Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crawcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, along with my co-host, Matt. Hey. And today we're joined by author and uh, blood python breeder, Rich Crowley. Rich, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. So, uh, Rich, you want to go a little, little bit of detail about yourself, how you got uh, started with reptiles and uh, what you currently do? Sure. Um, well, I think like a lot of folks, at least I hope, uh, like a lot of folks, you know, you start out at an early age, that wonderful fascination with uh, herps in general um, and other wildlife. Uh, I was big into, uh, you know, being in Illinois um, with family down in southern Illinois, always making that uh, uh, pilgrimage down to southern Illinois. And I've been on Snake Road so many times I can't even I can't even remember. But, uh, you know, I've seen it all and at least from an Illinois perspective and it really captivated me. Um, I was kind of talked out of going through veterinary medicine, biological sciences by family. Um, not a big surprise, but my family has all been um, big into uh, more on the business side. Uh, and the, the good news is, you know, I, I went that direction and I've had a successful career there. So it allowed me to explore my uh, her passion. Um, I've been a member of the Chicago Herp Society for oof, I would say more than 25 years uh, I've been a board member um, for most of that journey uh, I've been involved with the adoptions program which is basically rescue uh, I'm currently the sitting treasurer this is my second year doing it uh, I'm, there's a little bit of a joke there I am actually an accountant by profession and I fought tooth and nail never to be the treasurer and uh, ultimately I uh, Became the treasurer for the last two years, but I've been president uh, prior to that. I was president for three uh, three years uh, from 2017 through 2019, and I was president back in uh, 2006. Uh, I've been involved heavily with um, local, and I say local, it's actually regional rescue within the Midwest, covering pretty much everything uh, because of some uh, unusual uh, opportunities of proximity to Brookfield Zoo. I used to live right next door to it. I got heavily involved with helping them um, with a lot of the uh, uh, calls of, I'll call them donations, that were made to the zoo. And like a sucker, I volunteered to help them out with that. And I turned into, for about three years, I turned into about seven calls a day. It was a full-time job all in its right. And during that three-year period where I was officially the chairman with the Chicago Herb Society, I probably helped relocate somewhere around 5,000 animals. Um, and that covered the gamut. I mean, we had, you know, I helped Lincoln Park Zoo relocate a bunch of diamondback water, uh, uh, rattlesnakes. Uh, I've had, I've been involved with a lot of crocodilian related issues. We've been involved with gaboon vipers pulled out of dumpsters out of O'Hare Airport. We've had monocle cobras, Pakistan cobras. We, you know, I mean, just a whole slew of of uh, quote-unquote pets, uh, which obviously those are not standard pets, certainly not in Illinois. But uh, you know, my childhood was uh, all captive, uh, or I shouldn't say captive, all wild-collected animals, everything from frogs, turtles. Uh, I got big into invertebrates. I was big into crayfish and uh, some of the insects uh, as a kid. Um, I was actually prohibited from keeping snakes. <laughs> As a kid, uh, and I've heard counseled a lot of uh, uh, kids over the years um, who've really kind of complained about the pet, the fact that the parents wouldn't let them have snakes. They go, wait, wait, 
when you get older, you can do it all you want. <laughs> uh, I, I would have to say I've probably made up for, uh, for those years of my, my mom was probably a very smart woman by not letting me have snakes at that <laughs> early age. I, I can't imagine what it would be like now if I had an earlier start. Um, but I did have an experience with my first exotic was actually a ball python. Uh, I would say probably the late eighties and came in in bad condition, you know, got it cheap, was an adult. And it's probably the one thing that really turned the tide for me uh, because that animal had so many health issues. I actually poor college student spent whatever money I had working on trying to get the animal treated only to ultimately end up resulting in it having a uh, necrotic uh, digestive tract because of being transported with a full stomach out of Africa. So the animal ended up ultimately being euthanized, but um, it opened my eyes up to, I would call it a deeper uh, pursuit of what it takes to actually um, keep the animals to understand the physiology uh, and mind you, you know, here I am studying accounting and, and uh, information systems and whatever else, you know, on the business side. But at the same time, too, I was getting I was getting this real, I don't know, attraction to uh, the animal world in a, in a deeper, more profound way than just a routine keeper. And it, it didn't stop there. And um, if you asked me then if I ever expected that would have been going from reading books to writing one, let alone publishing it. Um, I would have thought you were nuts, but, uh, it happened. It happened. And hey, you guys can see the video, but that's the original artwork for the cover of, uh, of the book. And, uh, after the author, uh, James Krause from fourth, uh, fourth point artistry, after he got done with it, I'm like, nobody's getting that artwork. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever royalties I had accumulated at that point, I ended up buying the original artwork and it was the best, uh, I said, if nothing else came out of that, that was, that was it. So I would have been happy right there. So long journey. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you're, uh, you do currently breed, uh, uh, short tail and blood pythons, right? Yeah. So the whole complex of short tails is something I've always been fascinated with. Um, you know, I've been working with them since, uh, I think it was around 1994 was when I first got my first short tail. Um, it was, probably about a year or two before that when I actually saw my first blood python and I was like, Oh, I got to have that. And anybody who's been around long enough that the, the terminology blood python, short tail python has been very confusing for a long time. So I, I saw blood python, which was your python bronger's mind, which is your classic, you know, red, red blood python. I saw one and I wanted one and I had connection with a, um, a local, um, pet wholesaler, pet shop guy. And I asked him, I said, I want a blood python. <laughs> well, well, the terminology was loosely used. So what ended up happening was I ended up getting a Borneo and uh, I get this brown snake. And I'm like, well, that's not a blood python, but it looked, it had all the body and stuff. So, but uh, the journey now is, yep, I've been doing it for a long time. I love, I, I think there are great species to work with. The myth uh, is undeserved. I mean, that was back in the days when we used to capture, you know, wild collected animals out of the wild and they used to snare them and they were just, you know, ornery as all heck. And I've, I've had my dealings with them and I'm glad to report that you, you don't have to go through that experience <laughs> with all the captive animals that are out there. But I work with all of them. 
um, at least all the ones that are available in captivity. Um, there's been a uh, identification of a, of a fourth species, uh, and that was uh, Python Keitako, uh, that came out of Burma. Um, unfortunately, I don't think I don't think I don't think there was many of those representatives available to begin with, let alone any of them making it to the country. So, uh, Python Brungers, my the blood python, Python Bridgestini, which is the Borneo, Python Curtis, uh, of course, which is the Sumatran. Uh, uh, called black or black short tail and uh, and i also work with localities as well since we've gotten to be a little bit more refined in our uh, recognition of not only the species but also certain unique localities that offer some uh, variations in color pattern and even size um, so it's been another pursuit that i've been exercising over the last few years so um I'm going to take a step back real quick before we get back to the blood pythons. When um when <laughs> when relocating um different animals and stuff like gaboon vipers in Chicago, how did how exactly did that work? Like how did you relocate like you know like a gaboon viper or something like that? Yeah, that was an interesting story. So it's probably one of my favorite stories. So what ended up happening was apparently somebody must have ordered it. It was imported um in and came in through O'Hare Airport. Um, ironically, it was discovered in a dumpster. Uh, it was in a dumpster. It was in a cardboard box. It was um, splattered with a lot of like latex paint and drywall dust. So somebody must have taken it, realized it was not what they wanted, whatever, and they just dumped it in the dumpster. And this was actually, I want to say this was maybe in the February or March time frame. So you got to think about Chicago, February or March is a brutal time. I mean, it's yeah. rare that we have temperatures that are not above freezing. Um, that are, I should say, they're above freezing. So what ended up happening is these kids were seen poking at the box. Law enforcement was pulling by and realized that they were doing something, inc looked into it, found out that there was an animal in the box, picked up the cardboard box, threw it in the back of the squad, dropped it off at animal control. Now, flash forward. Now, mind you, this animal's cold, and we're talking about a West African species. So we're talking about a tropical species, not accustomed to any temperature gradients outside of a tropical environment so this thing's probably you know surprisingly it survived but the you know it was probably dormant for the most part um they get it and you know they didn't know much about it so they just simply dumped the box into an enclosure and the enclosure they dumped it into which typical with animal control they're not really well suited to taking in reptiles they dumped it into, um, uh, I call it a multi-purpose habitat, and it was basically a screened-in box with a two-by-four with cloth uh, uh, carpeting on it um, to handle things like parrots, to handle monkeys and stuff like that. So, But you basically had this square box, and they just dumped the animal in there. So then, thankfully, nobody made contact with it. They dumped it in there, and... Sometime later, a couple of the animal control officers, and of course, we worked with animal control pretty extensively, so we got to know a lot of these the officers and stuff. A couple of them were like, hey, we're going to go get our picture taken with this boa constrictor that just came in. And as it so happens, one of the AC officers um, was from West Africa. And he's like, oh, so let's go take a look at it. Well, when they walked in there and he saw it, <laughs> He's like, no, 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 that's from my country. <laughs> he, says, 
you know, he says, that's a, that's an adder. He says, you know, a viper. He says, that'll kill you. Says, that's not a boa constrictor, you know? And this was an adult female gaboon viper. Anybody who's ever seen a gaboon viper, it's pretty hard to miss. It's very distinctive, the head. And this was a big adult. I mean, she was taking rabbits um, later on when we rehabbed her. So, you know, we're, we're talking a big brute. And, you know, they're known for having the longest fangs of any species of snake. Um, and they certainly have a cocktail of venom that certainly is very impressive. It's, it's a mix of a lot of things. And let's face it, there's probably no viable anti-venom for, you know, for a bite like that. So um, anyhow, so they realized it. they reached out to Chicago Herpological Society. And we've got, we had a number of volunteers that specialized in this space at the time. And uh, a friend of mine uh, who specifically committed to handling Chicago uh, took the call. And I remember <laughs> he calls me up later uh, and he goes, you will never guess what I got. <laughs> And of course, we play these games all the time. You know, so you know, somebody's like, "Oh, you know, you got a rattlesnake," and it ends up being a fox snake with you know its tails up against the banging up against something. Or somebody says, "Oh, I got a puff adder," and it's a hognose snake, right? So often you will get native animals that are misinterpreted as exotics. Rarely, you know, let's say rarely, almost never do we get the uh, I'll call it the lottery winning, where you actually get something that really lives up to it, you know its appearance. So, and I, you know, we were playing this game thing. Oh, yeah. And he goes, let me send you a picture. And I get this, you know, at the time I get this, you know, crappy little flip phone photo and I'm looking at it and you can barely tell because it's in a polycarbonate container, um, which was a food service container that was adapted to reptiles. So there's sealed in venting and stuff like that. It was pretty, pretty ingenious method of, of containing animals, but he ended up having to put it in the shower area to, wash the dust and whatever latex paint off and the animal is dehydrated and so sends this picture and i'm looking and you can tell even through all that you can tell the telltale patterns and it, even in a, sort of the dusty format you could definitely tell the colors that were coming in and it was just like you have got to be kidding me <laughs> <laughs> so long story short that animal ended up um we saved its life it was uh, rehomed to the Wildlife Discovery Center, um, which your uh, your first guest's twin brother manages, Rob Carmichael, of course, uh, his twin brother to Chris Carmichael. Um, and Rob actually took that um, that animal in, and he actually lived with him quite well. It was on display during uh, Reptile Rampage for a number of years. So um, that was... <laughs> That was probably the best tale I've ever had with uh, experiences with rehoming animals outside of uh, some of our goofy crocodilian experiences. But yeah, with exotic stuff, is that what you usually do? Is put it, give it to like a zoo when you're rehoming it? We try, you know. So, um, you know, it's evolved over the years. You know, during the years, so I ran. I've been involved with the program um, since 98. I was chair for that from 98 to 2000 and turned it over to one of my good friends. And she actually ran it for, oh my gosh, well over 15 years. And um, thankfully the volume tapered off, but part of that was the infrastructure that we built um, you know, more and more with the internet, because you also got to look at the internet was a big part of that. So people were able to post things on the internet and, you got more, I call it um, 
yeah, more sources of, of, I don't know, bartering, selling, trading, or otherwise rehoming animals. It really didn't exist at that time. But we ended up, um, we had a network. Um, I built up an infrastructure so that we started with uh, members. Um, obviously, with a herb society, you've got people with a lot of resources available. You know, I mean, you've got some former zoo curators and stuff that were our members. So we had some, and a lot of, so we had a lot of great race, you know, places to rehome animals. Um, and then that was like tier one. And then tier two, we branched out to, uh, I call partner organizations. So like, you know, when Rob, Rob was both a CHS member and, um, he ran the wildlife discovery center and it was one of the few institutions in Illinois outside of Lincoln Park Zoo and Brookfield Zoo that was recognized as a zoological facility that specialized with uh, reptiles and amphibians. So, um, you know, one of the concerns there is that when we get animals in that were, um, restricted in some ownership um in illinois we wanted to make sure that they went to you know licensed or recognized you know institutions or, or individuals and um and in some cases if uh we didn't have um local resources that were available you know we worked in the midwest and then we kind of just we increased our circles beyond that and that was part of the effort that i did that i developed early on was building the network in advance of actually having the animals so we had really like the phone tree right you know it's like who do you call when you get a gila monster or what do you get if you got a gopher tortoise which actually has happened quite a bit so you know um endangered threatened species exotics domestic we kind of went down the litany to make sure that we had targeted areas that were the most appropriate um final home destinations and you know for chicago i mean we were we were very very fortunate from a number of different ways we had great zoos and even though it was rare that the zoos had taken there were times when the zoos did take you know i mean we've had uh, king cobras coming through o'hare airport brookfield zoo took some of them we had um i think we had what we had the uh, we had a jameson's uh mama come through and i know rob took that with wildlife discovery center we've had a number of um central american um and um caribbean specific locality boas that would come in and we would place them in different places um any of the native fauna that we took in fox snakes hog nose um some of the turtles and stuff like that we we made an effort to actually try and place them with the few wildlife centers in illinois that could use them for you know, animal ambassadors for training teaching um any of that so you know we we're we were very fortunate we had the means and um, process in place. Um, shipping was shipping wasn't as uh, sophisticated as it is these days. Um, you know, being able to just you know go to ship my reptiles, for instance, ship your reptiles or any of these the other ones, and just be able to you know pack up an animal and ship it over over state lines. Just it wasn't as easy back then. <laughs> yeah. So. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was a really worthwhile experience and it kind of opened my eyes up to a range of species that, um, you know, out of necessity, I had to learn about because I was taking some a, a lot of these animals in or at least trying to collaborate with people to sit there and say, you know, who was an appropriate um, contact point for bringing stuff in. So, yeah, it was it was an interesting experience, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, for sure. 
So uh, with your uh, blood python breeding project, uh, what are some things you're currently working with uh, with your collection? Oh, man. I got, I got a lot of pokers in the fire going on these days. So, um, so since 99, I've been working specifically with uh, a locality of uh, Borneo Python. I got a bulldog who's trying to get into my office. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Sarawak short tail python. So I've got a, um, I got a breeding pair working on that um, this season. Uh, hopefully we'll get a clutch off of that. I have uh, some Banka Island blood pythons that hopefully um, they've, they've evaded uh, healthy clutches uh, from me for a, a couple of years. So um, I've produced them before, but they're real erratic, real difficult to do. But I'm um, hoping for maybe one, maybe two clutches this year if all everything goes right. Um, last season, I produced the first time intentional breeding of what I call the nebula blood python, which is, uh, it's like four parts. Uh, there's one part, uh, wild appearing morph that um, presents calico style patterning. Um, and it also drives some very interesting um, patterning anomalies um, on the animal. It's also genetic striped, and it's also uh, the animals that I produced this year are both um, 100% uh, hats for uh, T-positive albino and hypo from the BPI line, hypo line, I call it. Um, the animals are really kind of wild. I mean, they, they hatched about, and the whole clutch came out the same way, <laughs> a lot of variability. Um they did have, I had incubation problems with it, so I didn't have as many animals um, going the, the term that I had hoped. Um, I had a fan failure on my incubator, so I had the animal, the eggs were actually incubated, I want to say close to 84, 83 degrees Fahrenheit, which is really, really low for uh, blood pythons. Um, the target for them is usually more like 87. So, uh, but all the other ones I have left, I've got 2.2 uh, in there they're rock solid they're really doing well um outside of that i've got a fifth generation borneo clutch going on i'm excited for that uh that should produce i don't even know what it's going to produce <laughs> borneo genetics are kind of mind-boggling and you guys follow that at all um it's really kind of hard to predict but you've got things like striping You've got what's called granite or marbling, and they're two, two distinctly separate type of appearances, though they look similar in certain phases. Um, you've got the lattes and the ultra brights and the ghosts. They're all kind of in this group of pattern and color um, mutations that uh, enhances the, the look of the animals. Um, so I've got a, I got a fifth generation pairing going on there. So that might, it might produce some patternless stuff. It might produce some oddball patterning um, with striping. Who knows? I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of potential there. Um, I have, what else do I have? Get some, you know, I'd like to produce just classic red blood pythons. I, I you know, I, everybody, there's the mutations that are out there and kind of like the ball python and other morph crazies. Everybody kind of wants the newest thing, but there's a lot of people that are looking for just sort of that classic, fire engine red blood python and i've been trying to work on a consistently reproducible high red appearance and um, with some pattern enhancement that actually reduces the pattern to add more red coloration uh, but yet not 
eliminate the pattern. So I've got I've got a couple of um, uh, selective bread lines that I've been working with. I'm hoping to produce maybe at least two more of those, two more clutches of those next year. So, um, and then I've got um, raising up some Python Curtis, some Atrans. Hopefully, I'll get some uh, clutches by them. If not this year, hopefully next year. So you kind of touched on this already, um, but something that you always, everyone kind of has a different opinion on when it comes to blood pythons is uh, their temperaments, you know, and, and stuff. So what, what, what's your opinion on that? Having worked with them a lot, just, you know, everyone has an opinion. Just what are your thoughts on that kind of a subject? Um, well, just like everyone has an opinion in the old joke about that. Um, every blood python has its separate personality, which right. is also like that. So um, what I found is that there are, certainly in captivity, um, we are just by breeding and producing and keeping the animals in captivity, we're naturally selecting animals that are thriving in captivity. Um, and what I found is that when you breed a really mellow, nice adults, I'll call them pet pet quality of debt, you know, if, if there is such a thing. Um, when you do that, you produce really mellow babies. So the balance, of course, is producing a very well-behaved animal that actually eats. Because a lot of times they could be mellow, but they're not aggressive enough to eat healthy. Right. So um, the other aspect I go by is not just simply trying to um, produce animals that are genetically, inheritably nice, but also to work on, um, I'll call it behavior modification. Uh, I've taken in you know, defensive, I don't want to say aggressive, uh, defensive animals um, and found that really with some TLC and some trust building, they can turn around very well to and adapt themselves to a very um, mellow disposition. But that being said, all it takes is a couple of uh, keeper errors that can trigger the animal to revert back into a defensive or stressed environment so the biggest aspect that i've or at least i hope to have contributed is by the you know by writing the book was to get knowledge out there people could refer mm -hmm. to and at least start with understanding that blood pythons any short-tailed python exhibits defensive behaviors because of its um, because of environmental conditions poor husbandry right. The problem is, is people didn't know what the good husbandry is. And, you know, you, you can kind of go back into the annals of time and everybody's like, oh, they're swamp snakes. Keep them on water. No, <laughs> um, I keep I keep my short tails like I keep a ball python. I keep them on paper with a bowl. Um, I might keep them on cocoa. Um, quite honestly, I, I find myself doing less cocoa, more paper because they urinate a lot. And one of the uh one of the key triggers to bad behavior with short tail pythons is they're they're prima donnas. They don't like a dirty cage. Um, so you got to stay on top of that. And, you know, they, they pee a lot. The ammonia levels build up very quickly in a rack system or a cage that's enclosed. And, and yet you need that sort of enclosed environment because you're trying to keep the humidity at a healthy level. So, um, you know, I try to coach people. I said, put substrate in. It's very absorbent, but keep it clean. You know, as soon as the animal urinates, clean it out. Um, they don't defecate all that frequently yet. If you get an animal and you keep them on a good habit of feeding and good quality care, 
they will defecate frequently, you know, regularly. I don't want to say frequently, but definitely regularly. They're not like a colubrid. You're not getting defecations weekly, daily. <laughs> um, I don't miss my Kel Kings on that regard. But, uh, you know, they, they will definitely defecate maybe once a month, uh, maybe once every couple of months. And they have significant movements. I mean, you give them pretty substantial prey comparatively to their body size. Um, they don't really need to defecate that frequently. They, they're ambush predators. They absorb a lot of their nutrients. They kind of hold and retain it. Um, and that's okay. You know, the, if you try put, giving them more food, all you're doing is just, you know, basically clogging a drain. Um, and in some cases, you're wasting your money because, you know, it, it, it'll push it out. Um, but they may not be able to draw as many of the nutrients out of it in the process. So I feed mine pretty much anything. It doesn't matter the, the age. I'll feed on a every three to four weeks. Um, I keep them fairly, fairly lean. Um, I do pick up the feeding rates more on the you know the breeding season um but you know to get them mellow you just got to keep their cages clean keep give them fresh water you gotta you know fresh water is critical with them because they will not drink the water if it's spoiled um the other thing i do which is really a key as a breeder is that i try to establish the animals to be successful with their new owners and one of the ways to do that is there's um when the babies hatch out, um, people have this sort of innate need to separate the animals right away. And yet I do not do that. So I will take five to six babies at a time right out of the egg. I'll put them together in a raise up tub, uh, which is usually either just a paper substrate, you know, uh, um, like a paper towel substrate with a water bowl. Um, some people actually don't even do the substrate they just do like a real thin layer of water just enough to for them to you know to kind of move around in but keep them as a group in that highly humid you know um environment as a group for about a week or two and what i found is the babies can come out nippy um but they kind of teach themselves very quickly when they're uh, when their siblings are slithering over them not to nip out because they get bit in turn and they don't want to bite. So it's kind of funny. It's like, you know, within two weeks you get these little piranha and they all, all of a sudden they all like chill out. Um, and that's only, that's only the ones that tend to be that that way. Um, I've got clutches that'll hatch out and they never get nipped at, at all. Uh, straight out of the egg, they're good. You know, throughout the first six months of rearing them up, they're fine. Um, so part of that is, keeping them together as a group they get kind of used to that they're almost like bulldogs if you anybody's ever had experience with bulldogs they kind of like to pile on top of each other in the litter um so i raise them up that way i don't offer food to them uh really until the eggs uh the egg yolk is completely absorbed which is usually it's at least two weeks it's more like three weeks before i even offer prey to them um and i offer mine at night really warmed up for frozen thawed to begin with at about 105 110 degree temperature and uh, about half of them will take frozen thawed you know the other ones they take live usually are starting out with a small sometimes even a medium mouse as their first meal people tend to make the mistake of going with it's not like a ball python don't offer it a pinky they're going to look at you like you're nuts they like they like big prey they and they're always like that and it's funny once you get them to the point where they take large rats 
you know, which could be probably, I don't know, maybe about 18 months out, 12 to 18 months in some cases. Um, they stay in large rats for the rest of their life, you know, mm-hmm. which is great. You know, talk about uniformity, you know, keeps the food bill cheap. Um, I mean, they'll take, they'll take bigger stuff. And quite honestly, I'm like, you're just wasting your money. You know, you want to give them a rabbit. That's fine. They're going to get fat and they ain't going to breed for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let me, let me ask you this then. So, uh, would you say a green tree or a green tree? Sorry. A, a blood Python. Um, would you say, uh, that is a reptile you would, recommend handling or would you say that's more of you could handle it but it's better to just kind of let it be in its in its you know they they present an interesting challenge from a handling perspective um they're they're not they're not a clingy snake they're not like a ball python or a boa that's going to hang on you right and that helps um Mm -hmm. and a lot of times i find people when they have a difficult time with their animal it starts being um aggressive back to them or actually defensive is because, you know, you got to handle, you got to support their whole weight and, you know, a good hefty, large blood Python, you're talking six and a half foot, probably 25, 30 pounds. It's very uncomfortable for them to be held at, let's say two points, right? Left and right hand as you're holding there, depending on the weight, that might be a lot of pressure on those specific areas. That's uncomfortable for them. Right. It'd be like somebody, you know, when we were kids, it was kind of fun when our parents would hang us by our hands and, you know, you know, airplane us around. But for a snake, they, they don't like that. Um, so they're, you know, I tell people, I say it's a lap, you know, for lack of a better way, it's a lap snake. Um, mm. Some issues with, and challenges with that. So you want to be able to support them. You know, you want to support them in their body as much as possible. You can't put them on your shoulders. They'll roll right off. Um <laughs> Yeah, they're just not, they're not very, uh, they're not very well equipped to hanging on things. I'll just say that. But, um, you know, but they can be very, but like, you can interact with them, you can handle them. I mean, I've got customers that post regular pictures, you know, raising them up and, you know, having some fun with it. And there is a degree of intelligence, I think, with most snakes, and certainly short tails are no different. Um, They recognize uh, habits they recognize. I think in some degree they do recognize their owners, um, you know, in, in some basic ways. So, I mean, they, they can be fun. I mean, for at least for, you know, people that are enjoying an animal that just, just to observe them interacting. And, um, you know, I, gosh, I mean, is there anybody out there who doesn't handle a snake that talks to it and doesn't realize that they, they don't hear you, you know, but we do it anyways. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, and I, you know, I, I interact with mine pretty much weekly um, part of the cage maintenance and, you know, surveying, assessing the animals. And during the day, I have no problems with them whatsoever, but I'm going to tell you when the lights come out, they take on a Jekyll and Hyde attitude. I mean, they're just, they're like, all right, playtime's over. Give me food. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's actually a good behavior as long as you respect and understand it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can, you can hold them, you can handle, but you got to be able to support their body. Um, you know, back in the days when we were doing Chicago Herp Society's Reptile Fest, I would bring out a bunch of short tail pythons and it's really difficult to be able to give somebody a snake of that sort of that, that size and, 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 uh, girth and expect that they can manage it well if they've never handled a snake before. So what I would find it actually worked out really well is that young and old, 
I'm like, you hold the lower third and I'll hold the rest of it. And it worked out well because you're literally spreading the weight across that whole area. And the animals actually would sit still and kind of chill out from that. Um, especially with the background room temperatures being less than optimal. And then you got this nice heat source of people, you know, just pawing at you. So, um, and they've got, they got great skin. I mean, <laughs> the, it's the good and bad, right? I mean, they're harvested yeah. mainly for the skin trade. Um, and we've, you know, we've luckily saved a few of them along the way through our hobby, but, um, they have a great, they have a great texture, great, uh, their, their scales are really nice and tight. They're um, together, overlapping really well, and they tend to have a real soft, uh, almost like a soft feel to them, which is great. And I think part of the experience of being a reptile keeper is interacting with the animals. So the tactile, you know, interactions you get is, you know, if you can get something off of it, it's, you know, it's, it just encourages us even more to interact with them. <laughs> Which I have to, I know this is kind of shifting gears here a little bit, but that's the one thing about the Sarawaks that's different than the other ones. All the ones have kind of this nice, um, smooth scalation. And mm -hmm. what I found over the years of keeping the Sarawaks is they, they actually have more of a, it's not real extreme like a keeling, um, but, but it is definitely um, more of a, a kind of a bubbled scalation on the back. It's not as dramatic as an Angolan. But it's it's up there. I mean, the best analogy I have, it's like a softened version of a hog nose. And uh, and they get and it gets more pronounced, I think, probably with the keratin build build up in their skins as they get older. Um, because my adult female, you pick her up, she's definitely uh <laughs> only got one half of a really uh, textured uh, back pattern. And uh, you know, you don't see that with the babies, but the babies definitely I mean, even with the babies, and if you've ever felt a, a baby Angolan, you know, with their really cool bubbled uh, skin they almost have a silky feel to them as youngsters and the Sarawaks are kind of like that too hmm. so uh you mentioned your book a few times before uh, you want to go in detail about that a little bit like what what's called and where people can get it sure um you know I, I I'm a big advocate of learning 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 as much as you can um <laughs> and unfortunately I, th I felt like we had a drought when it comes to the short tail pythons and um so i back in 2017 i released uh, a passionate journey with short tail pythons and a lot of thought went into the title and the design of the book um you know i knew dave and tracy barker who i mean their credentials are just phenomenal and you know love them dearly and they've got great great knowledge and they've been working, you know, they kept saying they were going to work on a book and they've been working on it. They, oh my gosh, they've been working on it. But it was, you know, I was intimidated by the fact that it's going to come out and it's going to be some really complete authoritative resource that unfortunately a newbie's probably not going to spend the money or um, spend the time reading. So I wanted to target more, I wanted to give something for everybody because let's face it, you know, we're, we're kind of bookworms too, not just, you know, keepers of snakes and uh, lizards, but um so i wanted to get a book that was very readily available for people it was a good entry point um i called it the fluffer for the vpi uh, book four um and i i also wanted it to be tied to what i've experienced um throughout keeping short tails and that is you know these are these are an animal that's got a bad rep unfortunately and i had a lot of um 
peers that have all been, were, I mean, the, the more hated they got, the more we loved them because we knew the secret sauce and ours were like great, friendly, handleable, beautiful. And we're like, we didn't want them to be popular and, you know, sort of mainstream. So that's kind of where the passion came in. And the first part of the book is uh, passion statements that I got from a couple of contributors that I felt sort of set the tone for the rest of the book. And then of course, you know, it's, it's a care, it's a care book, right? It introduces people to the species, the taxonomy. Um, I got more into the care less on the breeding. I, I felt that I didn't want to give away too many uh, elements of the breeding because you kind of have to journey with raising mm -hmm. the animals before just jumping into the breeding. And I knew that the other text was going to be coming out. So, you know, I didn't want to spend a lot of time. And, and in, in many ways, I didn't think there was like one, it's not like there's one single recipe that works foolproof all the time. You know, it's snakes tell us all reptiles. I mean, it's, um, you know, we learn, you got to pay attention and there's certain behaviors and stuff like that. So, you know, there's a part of me that kind of almost wanted to come out with a second edition and just like literally dump all the, I call it the trade secrets into it. Um, but at the same time too, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's, I think people need to kind of go through that process of, of uh, self-learning and experience. Um, I don't think short tails are a beginner snake per se. But I don't think they're an advanced animal in any way, mm. shape, or form. I think once you get the recipe, um, you know, it's like baking a pizza. You know, it's come on. You know, anybody can make a pizza. You want to make a good pizza? That's a different story. <laughs> Trust me, I'm from Chicago, so I know what a good pizza is. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's. It is, it is something that I, you know, I don't want to kind of, I don't want to discourage people from doing it, but I also want people to realize that just producing animals is not, is not the end goal, right? I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of aspects with raising the animals up, um, getting them conditioned to um, human interaction. So I actually interact with the, the offspring and I realized by, uh, by raising them up in a group for the first couple of weeks takes that edginess off of them. Um, and that it's not something that applies to all species of snakes. You know, not all snakes can do you can do that with. Um, but it's definitely, I think, you know, if somebody wants to get into breeding uh, short-tailed pythons, it's a it's a great journey to go through. There's nothing more rewarding than hatching a healthy clutch and seeing those babies pip and you know coming out. But you also got to get them to eat. You got to get them to settle down a little bit, and even for your own good. And then. The unfortunate difficulty with short-tailed pythons is even if you do all that, sexing them is a pain in the butt. I mean, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I have, you know, I don't want to throw some names out there, but there are some pretty reputable names uh, of people that um, I have gotten offspring from and they were missexed. And, you know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the last person to complain because I'm sure I've done it. But, yeah, they're hard. Um, you know short-tailed pythons the females are the most hung of the <laughs> hung snakes um they're, they're, <laughs> the the homologs are pretty well pronounced um you know and at a young age you can you can pop them and they both pop i mean it's crazy you don't see uh -huh. that with a lot of snakes um and not only do they pop they actually pop with a little bit of um color to them 
And, you know, especially with the males, you really got to, you got to get a good pressure, not crazy pressure to be able to cap out the end of the hemipene and actually get that coloration, the vascularization to present itself. And, um, and that's, you know, popping is a skill set. I mean, it just takes practice and it takes an eye and a feel. Um, and even probing them as adults, you know, everybody's like, oh, you know, you can probe them. Well, yeah, you can probe them in theory. Um, anybody who's ever met a short-tailed python realizes that is the one species of snake that is the most anal retentive out of any snake. You touch their tail, they're going to bite you. Um <laughs> I was just, it's just crazy. And, you know, there's all sorts of techniques to restraining him and stuff, but it's a two person job. Uh, it really, to ideally do it well, it, you got to have somebody in there to hold the animal, restrain it safely. Um, at least the adults and even with the babies. I mean, there's some, it's almost like uh, snake yoga on how you hold a baby in a way that restrains them. And yet you're, you're popping them. So you don't get bit. Otherwise you're shedding blood like crazy. Um, because even the nicest ones don't like you, you know, squeezing their butt. So, but uh, yeah, I say that with all endearment. I, you know, I've lost a lot of blood to short tail pythons, and I'll continue to do it for the rest of my life. So, <laughs> so um, you kind of mentioned how they're kind of in between a, uh, a beginner and an advanced type of reptile, and you've made some yeah. comparisons to ball pythons. Would you say ball pythons are a good snake to transition to them, or would you say? Would you say there's another reptile that would be better? You know, I actually, I, I'm going to just say, yes, you can transition. Yeah, pretty well. Um, I think you have to understand the husbandry requirements of snakes in general mm. before going into short-tailed pythons. And the reason why is because the mistakes, for a number of reasons, the trigger points on a short-tailed python ultimately result in some type of respiratory ailment. And it is so difficult to turn that around. And I mean, there's a lot of other underlying causes that are suspicious that why short tails are like that, you know, everything from nidovirus or serpentovirus um, to um, just basic husbandry. But, um, you know, and you can correct the husbandry issues, but, you know, to turn the animal around, if it truly has an infection and you're giving it some type of um, antibiotic, just that experience is a, not a positive experience for both the keeper and the animal. Um, you know, given injections is traumatic uh, just because you got to restrain the animal and the animal, these animals are smart enough to realize they don't forget that stuff. Um, you know, I've, I've tried over the years trying to come up with different techniques of treating the animals in such a way where it's minimally invasive. You know, I've done, um, I've done PVC restraining tubes that were channeled so that the animal slides through and there's no wiggle room for them. And it's easy to just give them a subcutaneous injection. Um, I've done nebulizing actually worked fairly well. Um, but I think there's a lot of clinical studies that still need to continue to see about the efficacy of the antibiotics when it comes to inhalation. Um, and as you know, if you've got an animal yeah, short, most snakes, they say most snakes, many snakes have, they have, obviously they have two lungs where one lung generally is smaller than the other lung. Um, when you look at the physiology of short-tailed pythons, they're, they're a type of snake where actually both lungs are almost identical. Hmm. Um, and I used to think it was the opposite way, but I, you, know, you learn, right? You learn, you study, you identify. 
but there definitely is because of the nature of how the lack that the fact that they're an ambush very sedentary snake they don't move around a lot and respiration in, in snakes is different than humans we've got a diaphragm that actively works they they don't not in the same, same way so the problem is is the airflow doesn't pass with the same frequency and the antibiotics don't get to the lungs to the same level. So if you've got an antibiotic mm -hmm. or an antibiotic, you've got an infection that's deep in the lungs, like a pneumonia. The problem is, is the antibiotic isn't getting there doing its job as well. And the offset is you give it more antibiotic to get it there. But the problem is, is it's got to pass through everything else in the body to get there. And you know, what happens, right? You know, there's a whole bunch of antibiotics out there. Some of the newer ones that are coming out that are great, but you know, what type of damage does it do to the other the organs? You know, does it do the kidneys and the liver and stuff like that? And, um, you know, in the old days, we used to use Batril, and Batril scarred the skin. And, you know, we looked at um, amicacin, which is tends to have some um, some effects on the, on the kidneys over the long run. Um, you got ceftazidine, which used to be, you know, Fortaz, which is a, well, used to be a human drug. Ceftazidine actually worked out pretty good, but over time we find out that sometimes that doesn't even have an effect. You know, so you know, antibiotics are you know you want to you want to avoid having to treat them with antibiotics. Is focus on the husbandry, right? Uh, clean air, uh, low uh, toxins in the air, which means you know get rid of the ammonia from the aerates. Um, you know, make sure that they don't have fungus and mold building up inside the enclosure and that's the reason why I tend to move away from things like um, cocoa fiber, cypress, you know, and, and they all tend to be minimal when it comes to mold and fungus. But, you know, moist environment where you've got a plant material, you're still going to get it. Um, and sometimes people don't see it, you know, especially if you got a deep layer, you might have fungus and mold developing underneath. You're just not observing it because people are not going in there mixing it like they should. Um and where are the short tails? They love the burrow. Oh my gosh, they love the burrow. If you give them, a, you give them burrow material, they're going to burrow. Um, and unfortunately, that means that they're putting themselves potentially at risk in those environments where we're not changing out the substrate. Um, otherwise, you're changing that substrate out on a weekly basis, and it's just—I I think it's not cost-effective. And you know, yeah, you're just filling up landfills. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I try to, you know, try to consider that when we go through there. Um, paper is great. It's cheap. It's easy. Um, yeah, it's not real aesthetic, but it works. And I think, you know, there's a lot of other ways you can, you know, you can give the animals um, things to dig in. Um, that being said, I will use cocoa for uh, younger animals that refuse to eat regularly. So sometimes they need that extra that extra um, assurance, you know, insurance, I shouldn't say insurance, uh, being able to, you know, dig in. So I'll, I'll mix a little bit of sphagnum, um, cocoa fiber, maybe even cypress, depending on whatever available. Um, but by the time they get to be a sub-adult, you know, say maybe a year and a half old, you know, they should get beyond the, the eating issues and you, know, you should be able to keep them on paper fairly, fairly well. Um, you want to give them something enriching, wad, you know, roll up and wad the paper. You know, give them layers. They like to hide under the papers. They like to burrow through the papers. Um, you don't have to be pretty with it. It just gives them something that they can feel like they're secure. And, 
you know, I've seen a lot of videos of these animals in the wild. They tend to be, at least the Borneos, I can't say the blood pythons, but the Borneos tend to be more fossorial, um, mm. finding them in burrows all the time and, you know, in, in uh, abandoned rat holes and stuff like that. Um, in fairly, fairly deep. I mean, it's not like they're right at the surface. I mean, they, uh, they're going down and they got to be dug out. Um, blood pythons, my understanding from the views that I've seen, uh, that which is shared, a lot of them are, you know, usually found under um, on the palm plantations and stuff like that. And they're usually right underneath the under the leaf litter. They're not in the swamp. They're not sitting in the water like an anaconda. So, <laughs> which is you know, a lot of people used to think. But they're fun. They're fun, definitely. Um. You may so. I actually read this this morning. I woke up and I, I saw this article. I get like notifications of these articles. I, you may find this interesting, um, being that you know kind of some of this stuff. But um, I read this article that was saying that among squamates, so lizards and snakes, and this article was published two days ago. Um, it was saying that um, apparently speciation rates aren't affected by geographic isolation in reptiles and snakes which i thought was super interesting okay um so yeah they they thought like re reproductive barriers dealt with more with speciation among snakes and lizards and stuff but geographic isolation didn't seem to have much of an effect on it so i thought that was really interesting i don't know if you have any thoughts on that seeing as how i mean especially with like working with blood pythons working out morphs and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well it's kind of interesting so there's obviously some other environmental factor that's driving speciation right and yeah um you know we're also talking animals have been around for you know in some cases maybe a couple million years and without much change um so there's got to be you know in order for the animals to survive in the wild they have to adapt well if they're surviving very well in the wild there's no there's limited reasons to adapt um getting into that good old evolutionary biology but um you know now add in man you know we've been on the scene for whatever 50 100,000 years and certainly our influence has been more profound over the last like you know a couple hundred years maybe a thousand years so the question there is also is does man have are we are we are we going to start causing triggers of evolutionary development you know, um, quicker. Well, uh, it's, mm. So it'd be interesting. But, you know, when you talk about the geographic isolation, um, you know, at the animal's lay, so, you know, perfect example. So when you look at Python Bredensteini and you look at the Sarawak specifically compared to um, other, the Borneos that are found in captivity, you know, by appearances, they look, they look pretty much the same, you know, outside of color, um, body shape, structure, um, you know, size, all that stuff is fairly, fairly similar. And yet the Sarawaks are kind of more, I would argue that they're more, appear to be more of a montane. If you look at the geography of Borneo and you look at where Kalimantan, how it's split up and where the Sarawak region is, um, they're different, you know, now we haven't, there hasn't been enough work done. And I know Chris did um, some original work on the, uh, the DNA, but you know, what drives those differences? Well, now I'll take the Borneo and compare it to the blood python. 
or Python Curtis, right? You know, so now we're talking about animals that are on separate islands. They've been separated for some time. Um, and yet they're still similar in many ways. You know, why a red coloration? Well, blood pythons can be red, yellow, and brown. Um, but physiologically, you know, from a physical perspective, they're very similar. I mean, there's scale count differences and stuff like that, but they still feed the same way. They still, they're still an ambush predator. Um, but, you know, so geographically they've been isolated for a while and yeah, they haven't changed much. So that's interesting. But the question is they have changed. They have changed some. So if it's that geography that's causing that change, um, especially if you look at Brunger's my versus Curtis, you have blood pythons, much, much bigger, you know, um, up in the north of these uh, island of Sumatra. And then you got Python Curtis, the, the black uh, short-tailed python is south of the island, you know, and they've got a mountain range that kind of splits it in the middle. Um, and yet that one's smaller. It's black in coloration. So what's driving that uh, variation over, you know, a bright red or dark red animal um, in the west in the north? So, you know, I'm not sure we're ever going to answer that. But it's kind of fascinating to look at it and say, well, why? You know, what yeah, what absolutely. triggered that? Um and geography, I could argue, geography is not much different. I mean, the fact that they're separated, yeah, but there's not much of a difference between the two. Maybe, you know, maybe coastal differences and stuff like that, some very, very minor temperature differences. Um, so that it's, you know, I, I'm, there might be a little bit of um, randomness that just happened to take and that kind of what we see more than anything else. Well, that's part of with the geographic isolation. It's not just the uh, them being separate. It also has to be because they can be separate, but if the niches are still the same, then there's nothing that's going to drive the the um, any kind of differences that are going to make them not recognize each other as potential mates. So there's also got to right. be the isolation as well as the actual niches that they're fulfilling have got to be significantly different for the fact right. that it would it would change their their evolution over time so yeah that's kind of it that's kind of an interesting one. you send me that send me a, i would love to see the link on that one and kind of yeah, yeah i'll have to send it to you yeah for sure yeah i'll geek out on that i love it <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh besides uh short tails of bloods uh what are some other reptiles you work with oh my gosh i gotta i gotta learn to draw the line somewhere but i don't um <laughs> You know, I've actually been a big monitor guy for a long time. Um, not big monitors, just big into monitors. Uh, so, but I had I've had big ones. I mean, I've had Asian Water, I've had Nile, I've had uh, uh, my 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 one love was uh, Varanus Dorianus. I had a blue tail monitor that I just loved. Um, I just uh, rehomed an Argus monitor, big female, uh, to somebody hopefully can breed. Um, you know, that's part of the rescue side. Um, you know, I, I've never actively pursued, with the exception of a couple of ackies I have that I'd love to see eggs, you know, come out of. Um, I just enjoyed the fascination with keeping uh, monitors. So I've, I've had them. I love the challenge with them, um, especially the bigger the bigger species. Um, uh, I got tortoises. I've had tortoises for probably close to 30 years. I've got a couple I've had for pretty much 30 years, big beasties. Um, I've got a leopard tortoise that's uh, pushing the 30 mark. Um, a lot of animals that I've rescued over the years that I just kind of had a bleeding heart and hung on to them and they 
hung on and hung on and thrived. Um, I would say my the bulk of what I keep are the short tails. I love short tail pythons, um, and I I tend to be predisposed towards Indonesian, Indo-Australian species in general. Yeah. Um, I just I just I love that whole that whole region of the world. I mean, if I could just like literally just carve that out and stick it in my in my uh, reptile community, you know, colony, I would be a, a happy person. But, uh, um, you know, there's down the road, I've got plans to get into Kimberly Rocks. Um, definitely, I'm just right now, I'm actually in the process of uh, designing enclosure, um, make sure that I do justice with them. Um, I've got uh, kind of getting back, I've been always into Candoia. Um, mostly Pulsoni, the Viper uh, ground bows. Um, but I started getting into um, uh, the Aspera, Candoia uh, Aspera, um, the, the actual Viper bows. I just, I just love them. The, the, and there's, <laughs> there's a bit of a kind of interesting uh, parallel to the short tail pythons. I think I see a lot of a lot of short tail python keepers getting into the, uh, whether it's the um, Solomon ground boas or getting into the viper boas. I think I see a lot of people getting into them. Um, you know, they're that really laid back sedentary species. They, you know, they, I think they call them the sleeping snake in their native uh, locales, just because they, literally they don't move. Um, and yet they're fun. They're fun. They're real small. They're not, you know, they're pretty nondescript. Um, but they've got a fascinating. I love the heads on them. I think they're just they're just really really cool snakes. Uh, getting them, of course, established as a pain, and getting babies to eat is just you know the, the big challenge. But uh, they're fun. I you know that's probably my my latest little indulgence is trying to get them going, and maybe one day down the road being able to produce uh, captive babies off of them. But uh, you know, um, I've always had a green tree python in my collection. Um, just i just love it it's like having a a, a classic piece of artwork uh, <laughs> and i've got a uh i've got one that's i think it's a it's a maruk larry uh kind of cross um just beautiful green with beautiful blue diamonds down the back it was yellow and red when i got it so i've had that one for quite a, quite a few years and i had a biak before that that was like it's like six foot long and the meanest snake I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> and it was also my most enjoyable snake. I loved it. I had to get, I think I had that thing for like 16 years. It was awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm, I'm also a really big uh, fan of the Indonesian, Australian snakes. Yeah. Like, uh, I actually have a scrub python that's nice. the one I'm getting into. So, I know it's kind of suicidal, but yeah, I love what I love. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I kept a bunch of them. I had Dalbert's pythons. I had Liasis fuscus. I had, uh, yeah, what else did I hit? I had a lot of, well, Indonesian stuff. I also had you know, Timor monitors. I had, uh, I've, I've had, I've had a number of Argus monitors over the years, um, raised them up as to adults and they thrived. And, um, also recognized too, because I've kept the animals long enough to be able to see them go through the, from juvenile to what I call geriatric age, you know, we're getting better at our husbandry and our knowledge of nutrition and um, other aspects. So, I, you know, I'm in the camp now where I'm kind of like, yeah, I cringe a little bit at the rack systems. They're great. They're very utilitarian, but 
nothing beats keeping an animal like which you can't wreck any lizard species really but uh, i love being able to give a fully decorated elaborate large enclosure to a monitor and just let them go um you know i actually started doing enrichment um with a lot of the uh lizards and with the monitors especially i used to take the dog kongs and i would put prey inside them and let them play with that and give them a obstacle courses within their enclosures to kind of like a puzzle you know like i take a box where i would tape it but i cut holes just big enough for them to sniff and you know you get a big argus monitor it's you know 52 inches long they're going to rip a cardboard box in a matter of time but is being able to put the little inserts in there and then put prey inside the inserts you know and of course as you guys could tell i you know unending supply of beer related you know cartons for them to play with so <laughs> My, but, uh, yeah. my personal favorites are uh, monitors. Um, awesome. And so you mentioned keeping Nile monitors, which also have yeah. a reputation of poor temperaments. What are your thoughts? Since you know you also keep bloods, what are your thoughts on Nile monitor temperaments? <laughs> um, yeah, I think we do ourselves a disservice with you know I've moved away from in, um, dealing with imports uh, as much as I can. You know I support captive breeding. I will pay the I'll pay the crazy prices for a really good quality captive bred animal because I've gone through the days of trying to establish imports. And I think that's the biggest problem with uh, savannas and Niles. They're just disposable. They come in, they're all capped, they're all wild caught, um, loaded with parasites. They've got other issues, you know, dehydration and stuff. And, um, and more importantly is we, they haven't been in, they haven't had the ability to get established in a captive environment. And, um, you know, I've seen people get really successful with target training and other um, techniques with uh, sort of taking the edge off and getting the Nile monitors to chill out more. But there are, you know, Niles and Argus monitors, really high strung species. They, they, they need a lot of, a lot of ground to cover. They need a lot of um, challenges to keep their, keep their minds challenged. Um, I think if you can, if you can adapt to that and work with them, they're fine. The problem is, is I don't think we've done it enough to be able to get them to the point where they're trustworthy enough to actually, you know, confidently interact with, um, you know, the public and stuff like that. I mean, I've had, I've had, <laughs> I had some interesting Nile monitor experiences, but my first Nile monitor, and I'm going back a long time ago, I got to the point where I brought him in, he was nine inches and in six months he was 29 inches. And I know right. I could have pushed him even farther. And I tried working with him and he just, he just wasn't, wasn't working with me. And, um, at the time I was, uh, I was sharing accommodations with some friends of mine and they were a little freaked out. They were a little intimidated by him. So I ended up, uh, with a reptile friend of mine and he was like, Hey, you know, I can, I can take him off your hands. And we, we worked out a trade. And of all things, I traded them for my very first bearded dragon. Really? Are you serious? <laughs> and and mind you, bearded dragons at that time they're like a couple hundred dollars a piece. So I mean, they were. This was long before bearded dragons came into the scene. And and I was like, yeah, you know, for this little lizard, you know, and I'm giving them, you know, I probably had hundreds of dollars of food into that thing. Um, and it was interesting for about, I, I, I think I raised and bred bearded dragons for close to 20 years. And wow. 
you know, got into the early stages of with, you know, uh, Philippe Fajuli and uh, Bob Mayu with the uh, St. Bar Dragon Ranch and getting, you know, some of the color marks and stuff. And um, I remember raising the babies and, oh my gosh, I'm like, you know, I had one female that produced over her life 170 eggs. And it was just like, all right, that's enough. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was going through like five thousand crickets a week, and it's just crazy, Jeez. you know. Yeah. Um, I was getting clutches every every four weeks, and I get like thirty eggs. And I had more. Yeah, one time I had more than one female doing it, and I was like, all right, I'm, you know, enough's enough. <laughs> you know, the day job started getting started interfering with my uh, reptile experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you have trouble trying to offload that many babies? Uh, no, actually, I was pretty successful with it. Um, that was wow. also in the early, and I'm really dating myself. That was in the early days. Uh, Chicago Reptile House was fairly new. Um, they had only been on scene for a couple of years, so I was actually wholesaling all my babies through them. Oh, wow! Um, of course, I you know I actually was just there today, and you know I haven't been on at the store in a long time, but. They've been around for a great time, you know, Brian Potter and, and uh, uh, Jeff Lodico who own the place or, you know, obviously everybody knows Brian from NARVC and um, great guys. I mean, I've, I've been there. I bought my original vision cages from them in 1998 and I still have them to this day. So it's like, you know, it's a uh, long-term relationships, but I, yeah. We, and we worked out a program where I would actually, in the early days, anybody, they were like, you've got bearded dragons, I'll buy them. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I want them to survive. I want them to thrive and stuff. So we worked it out where we actually raised them up. They hatched out typically three and a half to four inches. And we would, I would force rate, you know, raise them up until they were at least six, six and a half inches because they had a higher success rate with new owners. So, you know, we kind of established that and obviously the diverse diets, but this is back, back in the day, we didn't have books on bearded dragons. You know, it was just, um, or they were just coming out, so we were all experimenting. You know, like what's this UV thing? You know, <laughs> <laughs> we learned a lot, man. The old, the old, uh, the old saying: "We've come a long way, baby." <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I actually had hair back then. No, <laughs> oh, well, that's what reptiles drive you to, I guess. <laughs> yeah. uh, Low maintenance. Yeah, yeah. See what you guys that's what you guys get to look forward to. Yeah, grow it on your face because once it comes off your head, nobody's gonna write that's, that's what we're trying. <laughs> <laughs> what your uh what would you what would you say is your favorite monitor that you've worked with? Oh, oh without a doubt, uh the blue tail, blue tail monitor. Mm -hmm. Um I got that one actually I got I got that by accident. So Brookfield Zoo got the male and I ended up getting the female. And they both came in through a confiscation. And I got a call from animal control offices out of Milwaukee, and they had taken in a confiscation that was pretty serious. Um, an animal hoarder up there, and he had some pretty pretty crazy stuff. I mean, he had cougars, he had um, wow. Eastern Taipan, he had uh, a whole bunch of stuff. And they, they were like, and we got this monitor lizard. At least they knew it was a monitor lizard. And they're like, but we don't know what the heck it is. We thought it was a Nile monitor uh, because of the, the shape of the tail. But they're like, it just doesn't look like it. And they described it as, I mean, if anybody's ever seen a, a, a New Guinea blue tail monitor, I mean, it's very, very reminiscent of the small croc monitor. I mean, there's some differences there. But um, black background, 
the yellow spotting and but it has that beautiful turquoise coloration from its hindquarters all the way through its tail where it gets its the holotype got its name um common name from so they called me up and i was like i'll be there after work <laughs> <laughs> i knew right off the bat what they had so i, I mean literally it, it took me it took me a couple hours that day to drive out of work drive up to milwaukee and come back and i was like you know when we opened up the bag you know it was just it was was a juvenile it was probably not more than maybe 16 inches long with the tail um pretty small and i looked at it and was like all right you know this thing is it's you know you could tell it was travel it traveled you know it came came as an import um i had it for a number of years i got it up to over four and a half foot um it was a real shy eater it would regurgitate if you walked into a room within a half an hour after it ate it was um, had this really nasty habit of spray pooping on the walls and spray paint. Um, but it was, it was a fun, it was a fun species to work with. And I ended up getting a couple more after that, trying to, try to work out a breeding regimen with them. But man, they're just, they're, they're the modern, they, you know, they, they're the ones that remind you it's a modern day Veloster. Uh, they were just brutal they would bite and claw each other during breeding activities and um she was a big female and uh she ended up she, she nearly killed her cage mate um through breeding activities he tried she wasn't receptive and she opened him up in two places and i was just like mortified and went through took it had a great vet at the time sutured up put it through antibiotics I'm going to tell you within six weeks, you didn't even know anything happened. <laughs> it was like, they were amazing animals from a recovery perspective. But at that point I was like, yeah, you know, I mean, you need, and I had them in a big, I had them in a big enclosure, um, like, you know, small room size, closet size. And I was like, that's not big enough. You know, you got to give them, you got to give them the ability to escape from each other and create almost their own micro habitat, you know, separate from the other animal. Um, and I think it probably would have been better if I'd raised them up like as, you know, same size juveniles, you know, as we've seen that with a lot of monitors and you have a little bit less risk of that happen, uh, of fighting, but it only takes one, you know, I mean, either one could kill the other pretty quickly. I mean, their teeth are insane. Not as, but they're like mini crack monitors and they're just, you know, fascinating, fascinating animals. But, you know, I've got some pictures of, from back then of, of what I had but when we moved into the house that I'm in now my wife was like you know we're gonna try selling this house and it doesn't help having a monitor lizard bed you know with the <laughs> diet it was eating it was just you know it's not the most it was a pretty pungent smell so um I ended up I had a good friend of mine at the time down in southern Illinois took it in and he had it for a number of years after I, mean, I didn't have the heart to asking if I could get it back because his wife was like taking care of it by that point and she loved it. So, um, did well with it. And I figured, ah, you know, maybe one day I'll get back into it, but yeah, too many species, not enough space. <laughs> yeah. But they're, they're fun. They're fun. Yeah. What, what makes you like them more than like a, like, well, my personal favorite is an Asian water monitor, but what, what makes you like them more than like, the water monitor that you worked with or Nile or anything like that? You know, I don't know. It, it, it could be as superficial as just the look. Um, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I love crack monitors. I love, you know, blue tail monitors. They have a similar physical shape and stuff. Love them all. You know, we're talking fine line. Um, but, you know, it's just they were fun. It was a good experience for me. Um, ask me again a year from now after I get my Kimmy, Kimmy Rocks, I might change my tune. Um, I love my Yakis, and don't don't take that the wrong way. I think the Yakis are awesome. They're fun. Yeah. They're interactive. Um but you know, I also like I like animals that have got some size to them, and and you know, part of the challenge is when you get chased around the room by your monitor, you know, you're living. <laughs> so, and I love I love my Argus. I mean, I love the Argus when I had them. I mean, I've had a couple of them over the years. And, you know, when they tripod up and they're what you know almost waist height on you, you're like, ah, little Godzilla there. That's cool, you know. Um, that I had a male that would tripod anytime. I it would, did not take much. He was always curious and he had to look. And uh, I used to call him, I used to get him, encourage him to come out of the enclosure. And then, of course, I would feed him on the floor inside the, the reptile room. And all he had to have was a mouse. And he's immediately up on his hind legs and, you know, almost begging for food, which was kind of cool. You know, but uh, yeah, you know, dubia roaches and stuff like that, all fun stuff. Uh, Matt, you have any other questions? No, I was just going to ask you any more. Other than that, um, I think it's a good place to to stop. We talked about a lot of a lot of stuff, especially ball, uh, blood pythons. Is uh, something I was really interested in. So that's glad we got to learn more about those guys. But yeah, awesome, awesome. Wow, you guys, if you ever if you ever looking to scratch that itch, hit me up. Let me know. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Oh, definitely, we'll do. Yeah, I'll send you that uh, that article too. Yeah, that would be great. I always love to read that stuff. Cool, yeah. awesome. All right. Oh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I you know wish you guys the best of luck. You've had some great uh, participants so far on the podcast, so I look forward to hopefully many, many more from you guys. So you know, keep up the good work. This has been cool. this Thank was you. fun today. Right. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Sounds good. Yep. Thank you for coming on. Awesome. Have a great evening, guys. Yeah, you too. All right. Bye. Thanks.